from the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, with which, the, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind. Be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This is God's word. You may be seated. We are in a study of the spiritual armor that we are given according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. And the reason that we are given this armor is because God does not want us to live a defeated life. And uh, before we're going to be looking at uh, the, the second piece of that armor, the breastplate of righteousness. The first thing we want to do, though, is we want to pray this morning and ask God to bless us. Father, how grateful we are for this particular piece of our armor. How grateful we are that it's true and that it's powerful, that our heart is protected. And that, Father, you, you, you have made it so, so that our lives are not despondent, our lives are not uh, depressed or defeated or anxious and, and, and fearful but that we can stand in your presence knowing full well that we have been accepted. And knowing that, Father, and not just knowing it with our heads, but allowing that truth to go all the way into our heart and our soul to be able to stand firm then in that day in which we face evil, when we hear the, the voice accusing us and tempting us, Father, to stand firm and, and to live a life that is worthy of all of this love that you've shown us. So to this end, Father, as we study, we pray for eyes that see, ears that hear, in order that we may turn and be healed. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And all the church said, Not too long ago, there was a full-page ad. It was taken out in the newspaper of a major university on the West Coast by a couple that was wanting to start a family. The headline of the ad read, Genius Egg Donor Wanted. Not Smart Egg Donor Wanted, but Genius Egg Donor Wanted. And the reward for giving up a genius egg would be great compensation. And the couple went on to write in this ad, We are a couple seeking high achiever, uh, high achiever egg donor to help build our family. And then they go on to give an example of what they would consider to be a genius egg donor. 
It could be a 21-year-old University X, and I say University X because I don't want to name the university, 21-year-old University X student with an A grade point average. Near perfect SAT scores, so I guess they're allowing a little slack on that, and the winner of several awards in high school and the university. The parents go on to say, we hope our child will be a top student as each of us was and able to go to University X or to another top university. Now, leaving aside all the ethical issues just for a moment, and by the way, the university paper took down that ad and printed a retraction in the op-ed section of the paper two days later. But let me ask you, do you think you want to be a kid in that family? Can you imagine the pressure that these parents would put on their child to perform academically or to get into an academically elite university? All of which to give them some kind of status. Can you imagine that actually going on in our world? Now, quite frankly, my biggest concern in sharing this, I know that after the message, someone's going to come up and say, you know, now where can I go and get one of those genius eggs again? I didn't really catch that. Believe it or not, this kind of thing happens in our world all the time. And it, 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 it might not happen as outrageously or sensationally as this, but it does go on. And this is why as disciples we must put on the breastplate of righteousness. Let me explain. This word righteousness is not a very popular word today. It sounds a little negative. It sounds like a holy roller or somebody who thinks that they're better than everybody else and they're miserable in doing it. And we don't like self-righteous people very much, do we? But in the ancient world, righteousness, this word meant something completely different. It meant something completely different. Simply put, righteousness means that you've been examined and approved. Let me say that again. Righteousness means that you've been examined and approved. It means that you're presentable. Think of the kid who works awfully hard to get accepted at a university they really want to attend. They've turned in their applications, they've taken the SAT, scored well on it, presented letters of recommendation, and then they wait, and then they wait, and they wait some more. And then finally, one day the letter comes from the university. And they want to open the letter, but there's a part of them that, that doesn't want to open that letter because so much is riding on what's written inside that envelope. And then they finally muster the courage to slit open the envelope, and they, with these nervous hands, they read that letter. And in that moment of acceptance, that kid, that, that student experiences a radiance that is more than just happiness. They know that they've been examined. They know they've not only been examined, but they've been found presentable. They've been found acceptable. Or think of the young man who wants to ask his girlfriend to marry him. In April of 1982, on a Saturday, I dropped by the jewelry store to pick up an engagement ring that had been sized for Ellen, but I told her that the ring was not ready. Yes, I lied about that. And as you can imagine, she was pretty upset. And I said on the phone, I'm, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do about it. I guess, you know, I'll make it up to you somehow. And the way that I made it out to her was to take her out to dinner at the finest restaurant in Abilene, Texas, the Red Lobster. You know, a world-famous shrimp scampi is no substitute for an engagement ring, but it's a start. And then after a dinner, we, uh, we drove to Wilhare Park. And most of you that have, have been to Abilene know about this park, just a couple of blocks west of the ACU campus. 
And there we sat in my unair-conditioned Ford F-150 holding hands. And then I finally mustered up the courage to tell Ellen all the wonderful things that I thought about her. And I talked for a while. And at the end of that, I took that ring out of my pocket and I asked her to marry me. And she said, yes, believe it or not. And then as these tears formed in her eyes, I slid the ring onto her finger. I'm telling you the exhilaration that I felt in knowing that I had been examined and found acceptable. Well, I feel it now as, as I, I tell you about that moment that I had been found righteous in her eyes. And then I leaned over to kiss her. And she punched me in the shoulder and called me a turkey for torturing her with the whole ring-not-ready lie. Now, okay, that part didn't really happen. But the happiness part did. And here's the thing. As humans, we all have a need for this kind of righteousness. We all need this kind of righteousness. We all have this kind of a need for good verdicts. We live off these. And we devise a self-image on the verdicts given over the years. We live for all of these good verdicts. Now again, righteousness is more than just a standard of morality. Righteousness is living up to the standards and finding acceptance in the eyes of someone we think is important. Let me say it again. Righteousness is living up to the standards and finding acceptance in the eyes of someone we think is important. And the reason we need this so desperately, and the reason that we, we spend so much energy trying to convince each other that we're okay is that we know that we're not on the inside. On the inside, we know we're not presentable. On the inside, where we're really honest with ourselves, we know that we're not presentable. And so what do we try to do? We try to cover that up. We have thoughts that are embarrassing. We do disgraceful things. We say shameful things. And it's been this way for a very, very long time for human beings. Whether or not we, we know it or whether or not we want to admit it, we want a God who is holy, holy, holy to smile when He thinks of us. We want a God who is holy, holy, holy to feel pleasure when He looks at us. We want that significance. We want that beauty. We want that which only our Creator can bestow on us. And that's the way it was back in the Garden of Eden, right? In the Garden of Eden, there was nothing to hide because we were without sin. Think back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no what? Shame. Here's how the King Jimmy puts it. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not what? They were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. There was a time, imagine it, when there was no such thing Thing as, as feeling ashamed. There was nothing disgraceful. There was nothing horrid or ghastly or appalling or hideous in the world or in us. Why? Because we were holy without sin and without shame. And our daily experience was an experience of the pleasure of God. And then one day we listened to a talking snake who convinced us that we did not need God. And so what did we do? We said, okay. And then we sinned. And in our sin, in the knowledge of that sin, we became what? Ashamed. And because we were ashamed, what did we do? 
hid ourselves. Our shame had to be covered. We were exposed. And we were made unpresentable, so we hid from God. And that was the result of wanting to go our own way. We know we fall short. We know that we fall short. And then there's this over in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Nothing, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's what? There's nothing that God doesn't see, in other words. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is what? Uncovered. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we got to do business. To whom we have to give an account. Now here's the thing with that. You know, if God's eyes are not on the creation, if God's eyes are not on everything, then what hope is there really in the universe? But if guys are on everything, then what hope do you and I both have knowing that we're unpresentable? We know on the inside that we are fundamentally unrighteous. And then Satan whispers into our ears that God would never accept us. And when he says that, when he says, God would never accept you. He knows what kind of thoughts you have. He knows the kinds of things that you have done. He knows what your thought life is all about. Then all of a sudden, that string in our heart begins to reverberate. And then Satan says, go ahead, eat the apple. Go ahead, eat that fruit. So when that comes, how do you handle the accusation? How do you handle that temptation? There are three ways that you can respond to that voice. Two are bad, one is good. The first bad one is this. There is the secular false way. The secular false way. Isaiah saw this in Isaiah 53, verse 6, when he said, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to what? His own way. We decided we want to go our own way. Our search for that significance that we think is going to cover up that shame takes us to all kinds of places. This is where the absence of God and the absence of that, that feeling uh, presentable, that, that absence of the feeling accepted, is replaced by trying to please our parents. Or maybe it's having a boyfriend, having to have, you, you have to have that boyfriend or that girlfriend in order to feel acceptable. This is where the search for significance is sought in job success or in getting a title or looking young and looking beautiful or making sure that everybody knows how intelligent you are. That's, that's how you try to make yourself presentable. Or it's parents garnering status because their kid is the star of the team. But in the end, you're left empty. It's sleepless at night. You're anxious or worse. You know, many of you that have, have read psychology, you know the name Alfred Adler. He's a psychiatrist, Austrian Adler wrote that he believed our sense of inferiority was uh, uh, created what he called fictional goals, meaning that they, they were the kind of goals that weren't real, they could never be achieved. But they're goals nonetheless, real goals to us. And though they can't be achieved, we still chase them down. But though we can't reach them, we try anyway. And in that trying, what happens is those goals end up persecuting us. So, the person who seeks acceptance through power, the greatest horror is to lose. So you've got to win, baby, win. But not very many people want to be around a person who will win at any cost, and that's the real reason. It's lonely and friendless at the top. 
Or how about the young woman who seeks to be acceptable through being beautiful and perfectly thin? Whatever that is. And that drive to be perfectly thin is fictional. That is, it doesn't exist. There's no such thing as perfectly thin. But the drive is real. And that drive is relentless. And it doesn't give up. And it has driven many young women into despair and has driven them into anorexia nervosa. And the goal has been the thing that has, has persecuted them. And the, and the thing that they want, the thing they want with all of their life is the very thing that functionally devastates them and in the end, and in some cases, destroys them. Thin is not the answer. Thin is the persecutor. And that's why Solomon said, you know, there is a way that seems right to a man. But in the end, it leads to what, church? But there's another false way. The secular false way, there's also the religious false way. And that's where we begin to think that we can patch up our unrighteousness by being really, really religious. We do religious activities. We speak religious lingo. We try to heal ourselves with religious duties. But it's false because we're not really doing it for God, but doing it for ourselves. To feel worthy. To feel like we've made ourselves acceptable. And in the end, all we've done is created a form of self-worship. And it's just another way, church, it's just another way, albeit a really sophisticated way, to avoid God as your Savior. You remember over in Luke chapter 18, there's this Pharisee that Jesus refers to in verse 9 as confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about what? About to, to God? No, he prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. It's Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. When that little satanic voice begins to whisper into your ear and begins to remind you of your personal dirt, begins to speak accusations into your heart, what do you do? Well, you know, I've, I've raised a good family. Listen, that's wonderful. I pray that we all have wonderful, good families. But be honest with yourself. Does that really erase those accusations? Does it really cover you up? Or the voice comes and you say, well, you know, I've given a lot of money away to charities. You know, I'm a very generous person. What a great thing it is to be generous. What a great thing to give your money to charities. But does it help you sleep, sleep at night when that guilt begins to creep in over the things that you've done that day? Or you say, you know, I've never really hurt anyone intentionally. Church, doing religion does not heal your heart. That's why many of you in the night when the weight of your sin is bearing down on you, you ask God to give you one more day. 
to give you one more chance to make it up, to make it right, to never do it again. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with feeling guilt when there's a reason to feel guilt. But enough with avoiding God as Savior. Enough with avoiding God as Savior. The Gospel is not presenting my righteousness to God, but God making me righteous in Christ. Can you say amen to that? That brings us to the Christ true way. And it's called putting on the, the breastplate of righteousness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us. That is, He was substituted for us. Our sin was placed on Him so that in Him we might become the what? Where do you become the righteousness of God? In what? In whom? In Christ, right? And then look at Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 8. Now when a man works... His wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as what? Righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. What these verses are telling us is that the righteousness that we could never get on our own can be given to us. That is, that Christ was and is and will be the only righteous man before God. And through faith in His righteousness and His, His life, His righteousness becomes ours. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, And being found in Him, not having a righteousness of my what? Own that comes from the law, that is, I'm trying to generate it myself, I'm doing the law perfectly, I'm doing the religious activity perfectly so that I'm covered up, but that which is through faith in whom? Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by what? Faith. Now what these verses are telling us is that the gospel is after more than just your pardon. The gospel is about getting you back into the presence of God. Into the presence of God, unashamed and holy and standing upright and not hiding in the bushes. The gospel is giving you the stand-up dignity before God that Paul describes in Ephesians 5 as without stain and radiant and without blemish. That means that when you're in Christ, God looks at you and sees the righteousness and the beauty of Christ. And he's happy. And you are unashamed because you're in him. You've been inspected. You've been examined. You've been examined with a fine tooth comb and found acceptable. You've been found presentable and righteous. This is a foundational truth, church. Remember the, 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 the belt of truth that we talked about last week? This is not just one of those truths that, that you, you, you memorize just for the sake of memorizing. It's a foundational truth that goes from the head and goes all the way down into your heart and soul and revolutionizes the way you think about yourself in the world. And that's why righteousness is a breastplate guarding your heart. You know, you, you fight in those ancient times. You might lose a, a limb, might lose a digit, could get, could get hacked pretty hard 
but you could still live. But a blow to your heart is fatal. A blow to your heart is fatal. And you know that you have put on the, ble- the breastplate of righteousness, that you have it on, when you can admit that you're a sinner and not be devastated by it and overcome the guilt for it. And you know that you have the breastplate of righteousness on when you can love someone selflessly and not for what you can get out of them, for what they can do for you, or, or, or for what you can get in return. And you know that you have the breastplate of righteousness on when you can let go of your money because it looks like dirt in your hands when you see the nail prints in His. And you know that you have the breastplate of righteousness on when your religious duty is not about salvation, but it's about living worthy of His sacrifice and love for you. Listen, friends, Satan will whisper. He will whisper. He will whisper when you fail. And you will fail. And when you fall short. And some days you will. And he will tell you that God will never want you, that you deserve to be cast out. And you'll want to give up on your faith because you can't handle the guilt anymore. Or you'll want to give up on Christianity altogether because in your mind it doesn't work. But the Holy Spirit will never say that to you. The Spirit will tell you to stop listening to that kind of blasphemy about God's mercy in your life. And the Spirit will remind you that your heart is covered with the righteousness of God like a breastplate. Old Jewish mystic Martin Buber tells this this story as kind of a parable tells this story about these two men that are traveling in a wood, a very, very dark wood. And there's danger all around them. And the path is, is, is it, it's invisible to them because of the darkness. And the danger has, has scared them. And then a storm comes. And in the lightning, the fool sees the lightning. He looks just at the lightning. But the wise man sees the path that's illuminated by the lightning, and moves from danger to safety. You know my story. I know most of your stories. There's a song that we sing by that old slave trader become minister John Newton that just every time we sing it, every time we think about the words, it just resonates in our hearts with with such power. It's like thunder. It's like thunder. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, stay with me, but now I see. You know, Ben's going to sing, lead us in a song right now. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of us that really struggle with this breastplate of righteousness. We, 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 we're looking for that cover-up. We're looking for that presentability in all kinds of different ways. That, that just don't work. And there are those of us that have tried it with the religious way and we just, we just think that if we can go to church enough and we just go to class enough, memorize enough Scripture enough, then somehow we're going to be made presentable to God and yet it, it, it's not working. The only thing that works is God making you righteous in Christ. And 
the way that happens is you, you confess Him to be Lord. And you choose the God way every day. That I'm no longer going to go my way. I'm no longer going to cast God off. I'm, never, I'm no longer going to eat the apple and cast God's Word and wisdom and relationship off so I can go my own way. I'm, I'm repenting. I'm going to go God's way now. And I'm baptized and participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And my sins are washed away. God puts His Spirit inside of you. And from that point on, you're in Christ and Christ is in you. And when God looks at you, He sees he sees the righteousness of His Son. And because He's put that Spirit in you, you become a more righteous person day by day as you become like Jesus. So has the path been illuminated for you this morning? Enough so that when you see it, you're moved. We can help you any way this morning. Come on down to the front and talk to these shepherds as we stand and sing together. Father, we love you. We worship and adore.